This is A Better Brand of Happiness, session 26, and session 26 is part two of our study of Philippians chapter 3, verses 15 through 24. So I invite you to turn there now to Philippians chapter 3, verses 15 through 24, and follow along as I read Philippians chapter 3, verses 15 through 24. And there the scripture says, All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my examples, brothers and sisters. Just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. I mentioned already this is session two of my study of this passage, our study of this passage, and so let me just quickly review what we looked at in the previous session. The passage, of course, is Philippians chapter 3, verses 15 through 21. And the big idea I wrote for this section is, like, like Paul, every Christian's goal should be to know Christ, and we should live for that goal by following his example. If I were to boil down my understanding of this passage into one sentence, that's the sentence I would use. Like Paul, every Christian's goal should be to know Christ, and we should live for that goal by following Paul's example. And we looked last time at verses 15 through 16, where Paul described his struggle to know Christ as now applying to all believers. He says in verse 15, all of, them, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And the phrase such a view of things, of course, refers back to the first 14 verses of this chapter, where Paul said, we should rejoice in the Lord, which means make the Lord our joy and our uh, meaning for our existence. And Paul um, fleshed that out, what it means to rejoice in the Lord, by describing his pursuit of Christ, how Christ pursued us and gave us the gift of salvation by grace, and then calls us to follow him, to seek to be like him in our lives. And so now in verse 15, he says, my goal to follow Christ is the goal that all believers should have, because he says it's for the mature, but all believers are supposed to be mature. It's the goal of... um, of life, of Christian life, of all of life. Every, everything that is alive is striving toward maturity. And something goes wrong when something that's alive does not reach maturity. And so when Paul says, all of us then who are mature should say, take such a view of things, he is saying, all Christians should pursue Christ in this way. This is the way we all should look at the Christian life, because we are all supposed to be coming mature in Christ. And then in verse 15b, he said, God's work in the lives of believers will lead them to pursue this goal. So Paul says, not only should this be your goal, because 
I'm teaching you this, but actually Christ is also working in your life internally. He says it in the end of verse 15, or the second sentence of verse 15, he says, and if, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. And so Paul says, this is your goal as a Christian, but he's not so worried that they won't accept it because he knows God is going to move them there too by his grace and by his truth and by his sovereign working in our lives. And in verse 16, he tells us that this goal is consistent with all that God has given to us in Christ. He says, only let us live up to what we have already attained. And it reminds us that we have this, this um, I don't like the word dualistic, but there's two parts to what it means to become a Christian. On one hand, the moment you trusted Christ, God credited you with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And for the rest of your life, he looks at you as justified. That is, as someone who has as much righteousness as Jesus has, all the righteousness that is possible. You don't ever have to earn favor with God as a Christian. And so in one sense, you are perfect in the sense that God views you as perfect because of the merits of Christ. But the other part of the Christian life is that reality still exists. God sees us in Christ, but he also understands and we understand who we really are. And by the grace of Christ, God not only wants us to be declared righteous, he wants us to become righteous in our lives. He wants us to grow up into what he's already set us to be. And that's what verse 16 is saying. This is what we should do. We've already attained perfect righteousness in Christ as a gift. But as Christians, we should desire to and we should be growing toward becoming like Jesus Christ in our lives. And so that's the, my summary of the previous session. Now we come this morning to verse 17. And here Paul commands the Philippian believers to come together as a unit in their Christian growth. Come together as a unit in their Christian growth. This is something that we are all supposed to be doing, growing in Christ and becoming like Jesus Christ and pursuing the knowledge of Jesus Christ. But Paul's going to tell us this is not something that we do alone. Verse 17 says, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And in this verse, Paul turns to the community aspect of the Christian life. He commands them to come together as a unit in their Christian life. And this command to join together is a command that uh, revolves around following the example that Paul left of a godly Christian life. Again, verse 17 says, join together in following my examples, brothers and sisters. And again, let's remember the context, because this paragraph grows out of the previous one, verses 1 through 14. Again, Paul in verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, taught us to rejoice in the Lord, to make him the object of our joy and identity. Then he described how rejoicing in the Lord meant receiving his gift of righteousness by faith in verse 9, and then living to know Jesus Christ. In verses 15 through 16, Paul applied this approach to the Christian life and said this is what Christian maturity is all about. And what verse 17 now adds to all this is that our pursuit of Christ doesn't happen alone. It's not done alone. The example of Paul is one reason why it's not done alone. If you've ever had to figure something out in your life on your own where you had no examples, no one to pattern your actions after, you know how frustrating that is. Casting around in the dark to, you know, assemble a table that the instructions didn't come with. Didn't, you know, the, the table came, there were no instructions inside. 
you got to figure it out on your own. you got no example to follow. Maybe not even a picture of the finished product. That'd be hard to do. Be, be a very frustrating experience. But Paul says, you're not on your own trying to figure out what it means to follow Christ. He says, follow my example. That is, if we do what Paul does, we will move toward the goal that God wants for us. Just as God gave you parents who supposedly raised you in your life and provided an example for you somewhat at least to follow in your life, so God gives Christian leaders to the church to serve sort of as parental units that we can follow, whose lives we can pattern ourselves after. And so we're not on our own when it comes to following Jesus Christ. We have God's Word, of course, but we also have people around us who have been applying the Word of God to their lives. They've been studying it. They've been learning it. They've been putting it into practice in their lives, and they've been growing, and we can follow their examples. If we do what they do with the same goal in mind, then we can be very confident that we will move toward Christian maturity. We will move toward what it means to knowing Jesus Christ. But in addition to having an example to follow, there's another sense in which we're not on our own. And that is, we have a group of fellow travelers. Paul says in verse 17, join together in following my examples, brothers and sisters. That idea of joining together means work as a unit. Work together on this. You're not alone. You have help. You have companions. You have, to use a Christian word, fellowship along the road of Christian maturity. Now think about what Paul is suggesting here. The believers who originally received this letter in Philippi, the first time they read it, they didn't probably read it, I'm sure they didn't read it with their eyes, only one of them did, and he read it aloud to the others in the context of a church. This entire letter was written to the church of Christ in Philippi. And when Paul sent this letter to to Philippi, somebody in the church, maybe it was the the uh, person that Paul sent carrying the letter, one of his associates, or maybe it was one of the elders of the church, but somebody got up in front of the gathering of saints, the believers in Philippi, and read this letter aloud. And so the first time they were exposed to these truths was in the context of the local church, hearing aloud what Paul had written. But yet Paul says in verse 17, join together. And so what I'm trying to get at is these people were already part of the local church. He's not calling them to local church membership or local church participation. They heard this in the local church. They'd already come to that point in life where they'd been baptized into the visible body of Christ and were participating in the community that the visible body of Christ participates in, coming together weekly to worship the Lord and to come around his table and to hear God's word and to pray together. They already had a community context in terms of the Christian church. But belonging to a church, as you know, is not the same as bonding with the believers in that church. Belonging to a church is important. That's that's an important step. But that's not the same as bonding with the local church. We have people who've attended this church for decades, longer than I've been the pastor here, and I've been the pastor here for a decade. It's my 11th year. But we've had people here who've been here much longer than me, And yet they've never really bonded with our church. 
They show up on Sunday morning and they leave as soon as the service is over. And that's the only time they ever do anything with the church. Sometimes they show up like after the service has started, so they hardly make contact with anybody. And sometimes they leave before the service is over. Okay? And so in a sense, they identify with our church. They may even be, um, they may have even gone through the process of becoming members of our church. There aren't a whole lot of people in this category, but there are some maybe who go through the process of becoming a member of our church, but all they do is attend on Sunday, and they may attend faithfully, but they never actually really get to know anybody in the church. Their fellowship with anybody they make contact with is no deeper than a handshake and a cup of coffee shared in the same remote space together on earth, and maybe some polite chatter about the weather or about sports or about politics or about whatever. They may be part of our body of Christ in a sense. They may belong to this church in some sense, but they've never really bonded with the people, which that's what the church is. It's not this building. It's not this room. It's the people of God. And some people have never bonded with it. And when Paul, so when Paul says here, join together in following my example, what he's saying here is, you need to go deeper than just an association with the church. You need to understand that the Christian life is a race, a difficult one, one that you're going to need encouragement along the way, one that you're going to need help with. And as important as attending the services of the church are, and as important as taking part in what the church as a community does, you're going to need deeper fellowship than this. Now, we have, of course, um, created some sort of official ministries to try to create this bonding. We have church membership is part of the process of becoming identified with the local church, but we also have small groups where we invite people to come together intentionally every week and discuss the Word of God and pray together, hoping that some of those, um, some of those opportunities for deeper fellowship and talking about life and people's struggles and what they need in their Christian life, we, we hope that small groups open the door to those kinds of friendships and discussions. We also have places to serve in the church. And many people, I think, don't realize that some of the best fellowship you may ever have in Christ comes with people you serve with. That as you show up, um, however often you serve together, week by week or a, once a month, but you show up with the same group of people and you start to get to know them and you start to work together with them, a bond in Christ forms and the uh, barriers to knowing one another start to lessen and you can see that the other person that you show up to serve with can be trusted to help you with some of your struggles in the Christian life. And so Paul here is saying, every one of us it needs to be following Jesus Christ, but we don't follow him alone. Now understand this. Each one of us follows Christ for himself or for herself. But none of us was meant to follow Christ by himself or herself. I like the way that sounds, so I'm going to say it again. Each of us follows Christ for himself or herself, but nobody follows Christ by himself or herself, or at least we're not supposed to. Christ created the church so that there would be a fellowship of followers of Jesus Christ, so that we could be intentionally following the Lord together as a group. To use an analogy that borrows a bit from the text, Paul talked about um, in, in verse 13, so in the previous section, forgetting what is behind and straining forward like a runner, 
Okay, so let me borrow that analogy of, of, of a runner and um, extend it a little bit into this discussion. Each of us follows Christ for himself, but none of us was meant to follow Christ by himself. And so this is like joining a group of runners. If you want to become a daily runner or a, a consistent runner, one of the ways to do this is to go running by yourself. That takes an extraordinary amount of self-discipline. It means you're going to have to restructure your life and figure out when you're going to go and not give in to the temptation if you're a morning runner to hit the snooze alarm or sleep in a bit or not to run today because the weather is bad, because my legs hurt, because all the various excuses that come along with that. Okay? So people do this. Some people establish a running practice on their own. But another way to do it is to join a group of people who run. And the group decides when you're going to show up and do it. And the group, you know, may, nobody's going to probably call you or text you and shame you if you don't show up, but there's a sense in which there's an accountability about coming. You want to kind of be known as the guy who shows up because that you join this group. And so if the group that you're, uh, that you're a part of keeps showing up to run and you keep showing up for it, that gives you someone whose presence not only um, kind of holds you accountable for showing up, but but it also helps you while you're running. So it not only helps you establish a habit of running because you have some accountability, but it also helps you when you're running with somebody. I prefer to run alone, okay? But in the times when I've run with other people, my performance is better. I run faster and I run a lot further before I quit. Why? Because I don't want the person that I'm running with or the people that I'm running with to think I'm weak, okay? And so their presence helps me perform better, it pushes me beyond what my mind and my body want to do. And the same can be true in the Christian life. Also in running, if you run with others, if you want companionship, like if you're the kind of person who wants to talk while you're running, again, not me, but there are people like this, a group of runners can perhaps provide you with that if you find some other extroverted runners to go with you. And all of this makes a nice analogy to what Paul is describing here in terms of the Christian life. When he says, join together in following my example, we can visualize Paul as a pace setter in the Christian life. And the Philippian church is a people who said, yes, we're running this race with him. Of course, Paul is ultimately following Jesus Christ, but he's setting the pace for the group. Now the group joins together, and in that group they find accountability to keep showing up. And they, they find also encouragement to not quit along the way when it gets difficult. And they find encouragement to keep going when they would like to stop. And they find people to talk to to keep them entertained along the way. Not entertained in the lowest sense of the word, but to keep them occupied, to keep it interesting. This is what God designed the church to be for us. Not just a collection of people where we once, where we once a week get together to sit all facing the same direction shoulder to shoulder, but having no more interaction than that. No, Paul says, join together in following my example. Be part of a group that is following me as I follow Jesus Christ. And then at the end of verse 17, Paul says, and I'm not the only one who can help you set the pace here. Notice again, verse 17 says, he says, join together in following my examples, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. 
You see, there isn't just one example. Paul isn't holding himself forth as the only one worth imitating, the only Christian worth following, the only one who's got it done right, and so he's the only one who can show you the way. That's what cult leaders do. That's not what Paul's saying at all. Paul's saying, you can follow my example, but don't just follow my example. He said there should be, there are a collection of other Christian leaders in Paul's ministry team and in the Philippian church who are pursuing the goal of knowing Jesus Christ. They've reached the level of maturity where the things of this earth and the temptations of life have have parted enough that they see that the only thing worth living for is knowing Christ and living for him and serving him. And they're on that pathway. And Paul says, look for them. Look for others who are in the race ahead of you that can also serve as an example for you to follow. Paul did not see himself as the only example worth imitating, as the only Christian leader who was doing it right. Instead, he calls us to see that there are common elements in the lives of godly people. Again, verse 17 says, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. What kind of other person are we to be following? Someone who has the same lifestyle that Paul had. In other words, Paul is describing here um, people who uh, have a godly life and saying there are common elements among them. They may look different, they may have different personal habits in non-spiritual ways, but people who are following Christ and knowing Him, they have some things in common. They have some things in common in their personal spiritual habit, things like studying the Word and meditating on its meaning and praying on a regular basis and interceding with the Lord for other people. But they also have um, the outgrowth of those things, a faithfulness to the wife or husband that they have. A commitment to raising their children for the glory of God to follow Jesus Christ. A commitment to be separate from the sins of this world so that they can pursue living a life that's righteous. In other words, Paul is saying if you look at the collection of things that godly people have, you'll see some, a, a, many things in common. And when you see that, then you can imitate the life of the person who has those things in common with me. Paul's command here is to intentionally look for godly people who live like Paul. Not that they travel around from city to city like Paul, but in their personal character, in their approach to godliness. They do the same kinds of things that Paul did, and they think the same way that Paul did, and they act the same way in their personal relationships as Paul himself did. Now in verses 18 through 21, Paul tells us the reason. The reason for all of this, all of this encouragement to follow Christ and to follow his example. He tells us the reasons that the Philippians and us need to be intentional about these things, about finding people who follow this pattern and are pursuing Christ in the same types of ways. Look at verse 18 again. Paul says, for, and so the word for tips us off that he's giving us the reason. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This 
subparagraph in our passage this morning, describes the reasons why believers need to be intentional about finding godly people and following their examples in a group. It explains why we need each other and why we need good examples to follow. And the reason for this is because there are many people who call themselves Christians and even call themselves Christian leaders who don't have the collection of things in common with Paul that they should have if they are godly people and godly Christian leaders. That's what verse 18 is getting at when it says, For, as I have told you before and now tell you again with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul just told us in verse 17 that there are others who follow the same example as him. There are plenty of people who live the Christian life the way it should be lived, the way God calls us to live in Christ. But there are also others who don't live that way. And the implication behind this passage, I think very clearly, is these are would-be Christians. These are professing Christians. These are people who even tout themselves as spiritual leaders. Paul says, I am encouraging you to follow my example and to look for others to follow who have the same collection of belief because there are many distractions out there. There are many others who will say, you can live the Christian life my way. But their way is a distraction. Their way is a road to serious spiritual damage and problems. This is a constant warning of Paul, as we see in verse 18. He says, For as I have often told you before, Paul, in his letters, comes back to this theme over and over again, that there are false teachers, false Christian leaders, false disciples of Christ, who can be very misleading in the way that they live, in the, way, in the things that they teach. And even Christ himself said there will be other Christs, false Christs, or uh, false um, apostles, or false believers in him. There are all these distractions that a believer could follow. But in following them, they're going the wrong way. So this was a constant warning of Paul. He says, as I've told you before. And the implication again here is that Paul is talking about professing Christians and even Christian leaders who live differently than Paul and other godly people do. And notice in verse 18, Paul says, many people live like this. For as I have told you before and now tell you again with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. There's no lack of bad examples in the Christian faith. There are plenty of people who don't fit the pattern. Their mind isn't on following Jesus Christ, as we'll see. And the emphasis in verse 18 is not on what they say. It's not on their profession of faith. It's on the outworking of what they believe in their lives. In other words, Paul says in verse 18, for, for as I have told you before, and I'll tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Not many profess to be enemies of the cross of Christ. Those are easy to avoid. Paul is saying many live as if they were enemies of the cross of Christ. And again, I think this suggests a distinction between what they profess. They profess to be Christians. They profess to be leaders, but they don't live like it. They don't live like a Christian should. They don't follow Jesus Christ and seek his righteousness in their life the way Paul urges us and commands us to do. They may say they are friends of Christ, but they live like his enemies. This means their lives and their lifestyle. And Paul says it's a source of intense grief for him. Notice again verse 18. He says, For as I have often told you before and now tell you again with tears, 
The phrase with tears is it's, it's a more intense expression than just Paul's, Paul's not just saying there are tears streaming down my cheeks as I write this. It's a more intense expression than that. It's an idea that means a loud expression of pain or sorrow, right? It's one thing to weep quietly in the corner. It's another thing to cry out when your foot has been crushed by a very heavy object. Paul is using the latter kind of word. He is saying, this grieves me deeply to say this. Now, his grief might have been the personal loss of people he thought were friends, people he thought were on the journey with him, who were pursuing Jesus Christ but have departed and are now living another way. That happens. I'm sure you've experienced it in your own life if you've been a Christian for very long. Someone you thought who was as committed to Christ as you are, someone maybe even that you looked up to as a leader who began to gradually depart from the path and the way that they lived. Or Paul's grief might have just been over the damage that people do to the church, which is extensive. But either way, he says, it it gives me no pleasure to say that people are walking away from Christ. It gives me no pleasure to say that there are professing Christians who live like the world, who live like the enemies of Christ. And I just want to stop for a moment and think applicationally about this because it's not uncommon, especially in a church like ours, that prizes biblical truth and that prizes a true profession of faith in Christ. We don't, just, we don't just gather everyone in who says, yeah, we belong to Jesus and it doesn't matter what you believe or live as long as you say that. We're not like that, okay? But sometimes I feel like people of our stripe have some joy in saying, I don't think that person's really a Christian, It's almost a self-righteousness about them saying, that guy's not really saved. Come on. Paul says, I do this with tears. It it pains me deeply to, to know that there are people out there that seem to have come to Christ and profess to have come to Christ, but don't live like it. And such should be our attitude as well. Now, Paul says there are enemies of Christ in verse 18 in a very specific way. At the end of verse 18, he says... For many live as enemies, not of Christ exactly, but of the cross of Christ. And I'm not making a hard distinction here, but I think Paul is making an important point suggested by his language. He says they're enemies of the cross of Christ. As enemies of the cross, they do not demonstrate the kind of grace that God gave to us when Christ died for our sins. So in other words, they may say, I'm a Christian, But they don't evidence the kind of humble brokenness that coming to Christ through the cross, the only way to come to him, means. In other words, Paul, I think, is contrasting a true Christian who humbly comes before Christ and says, Lord, I have nothing to commend myself before you. I'm I'm an unrighteous person and I deserve your wrath, but because Jesus died for me, I receive the free gift of salvation. Paul, I think, is contrasting that person with the person who says, well, I've worked very hard in my life to act like Jesus, and you know, as long as you try hard enough and are sincere, God will accept you. In other words, Paul is making a distinction. He's saying, yes, many profess to know Christ, but did they come to Christ through the cross? Did they come as recipients of the grace of Christ? Did they come in humble repentance, turning from their sins and receiving the forgiveness that God gave to us in Christ. But I think it means more than this. When he says they're enemies of the cross of Christ, I think he not only means they follow Christ but not 
the right way, not the true way of receiving his grace. But also I think Paul is saying they seek to undermine the message of the gospel of Christ. That Christ alone is the only means of escaping the wrath of God. The only means of knowing Christ. The only means of living for him and becoming righteous in our lives. So there are professing Christians out there who, when you dig a little bit deeper through the surface, actually don't like the grace of God in Christ. They don't hold to the grace of God in Christ. They want the label of Christian, but not the doctrine of Christian, nor the Christian life that should flow from that doctrine. Well, Paul has said that they live, in verse 18, as enemies of the gospel of Christ. What does that life look like? Verse 19 tells us. It tells us the life and lifestyle of those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. It says in verse 19, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. In these verses, Paul describes what these people are like. What He says they live as enemies of the gospel. What do enemies of the gospel live like? Well, first, he says, right out of the gate, even though it's the last thing that happens to them chronologically, it's the most important thing he wants us to understand, and that is they're on their way to hell. Whether they know it or not, whether they believe it or not. When he says in verse 19, their end is destruction, that's what he's saying. He's saying they may profess Christ, but they don't possess Christ. They're going to fall under the wrath of God because of it. Their end is destruction. Whether they know it or not or realize it or acknowledge it, they're on their way to hell because they've never been redeemed by the cross of Christ. They're enemies of it. Verse 19 goes on and says, instead of worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father and Spirit through Christ, they worship their appetites. Verse 19 says, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Now, this isn't only condemning the sin of gluttony. I think that's included, but that's not all that Paul is saying here. Paul is saying this is a person who lives for their own pleasure. It can be the pleasure of food and drink. It can be the pleasure of intoxication. It could be the pleasure of sexual promiscuity or sexual pleasure. It could be the pleasure of attaining financial wealth. It could be the pleasure of being looked up to and regarded as someone who is important, but whatever it is, they have internal desires that come from the fallen nature. And like an empty stomach, these internal desires scream out for attention. They ask to be filled. And Paul says the things that these people do, the choices that they make with their lives, the way they spend their time and their money shows what they really care about is filling up the emptiness inside, the desire for self-gratification and self-pleasure. They're not interested in pleasing Jesus Christ. They're interested in pleasing their ever-hungry appetites. Verse 19 goes on and says this, they take pride in their sins instead of being ashamed of them. Verse 19 says, and their glory is in their shame. A person's glory is the thing that they're proud of. And when Paul says their glory is in their shame, what he's saying is they should be ashamed of the sins that they're committing. They should be ashamed of the things that they are holding forth as important. Instead, they look at it as a point of personal pride. 
This is talking about sort of an overt parading of a person's sin, saying they may even Christianize it by saying, look at the liberties that we have in Christ. Nothing I can ever do can separate me from Jesus Christ, and so that can live any way I want. Paul says they should be ashamed of this. Instead, they take pride in it. Finally, in verse 19, he says, their attention is on the temporary things of this world, not the things that last forever. He says in verse 19, and their mind is set on earthly things. And that, I think, is the banner, or maybe it's the bucket in which all of these things fit. The reason that their end is destruction is because their mind is set on earthly things. The reason that their God is their stomach is because their mind is set on earthly things. The reason they glory in things they should be ashamed of is their mind is set on earthly things. We're talking about people who may profess to know God, but they live for this world. Their priorities reflect what's important to this world. Their pleasures uh, reflect what's important to this world. Their pride reflects what's important to this world. They may say they know Christ, but they live nothing like what a Christian should. Paul says, watch out for these people. There are plenty of them out there. Don't follow their examples. And again, I think it's important to stop here and make a point of application because this has always been part of the Christian world and it's the part of the Christian world we live in. We call ourselves evangelicals to distinguish ourselves from people who overtly don't preach the gospel of Christ, who don't believe in a personal conversion of faith and repentance to following Jesus Christ. So we call ourselves evangelicals, but there are evangelicals who are defining down what living for Christ means in this world. There are evangelical homosexuals. They say, I believe in Jesus Christ, but I think it's okay to live with my partner or to have multiple partners. Or there are people who believe in Jesus Christ and they say, but I think it's okay for me to live with a, an opposite-sex partner or to have multiple opposite-sex relationships that are sexual in nature. They may claim to know Jesus Christ, but they're living a life that doesn't conform to what Christ calls us to live, a life that's righteous in the sight of God. And the reason for that is their mind is set on earthly things. They want acceptance from people on this world. That's what a lot of this accepting of evangelical homosexuals is about well if we if we you know if we keep quiet about it and if we're tolerant of it maybe the world won't think so poorly of us what a foolish idea their mind is on earthly things they want earthly acceptance they want earthly comforts they want earthly joys and pleasures and of course this is a temptation for us all too for all of us so when we see Christian leaders who look good in many ways, but they follow these ways, it's easy for us to say, well, I'm going to follow this Christian leader for the moment. I read a story about a, um, a very prominent uh, player in the NFL who was raised in, a, in an evangelical household. Sounds like a very good gospel-centered household. But during his playing days in the NFL, he's still playing, he came under the influence of Rob Bell, who also started out as an evangelical, but pretty quickly moved to um, saying all kinds of things were, were acceptable and appropriate for Christians that are outside the Scriptures. And this NFL player talked about how his mind became changed over time and his life has changed radically. 
This is exactly what Paul is warning against. Because he found a teacher that said things that he liked, he was turned away from following Jesus Christ. Paul says, you need to join together in following my example and the example of people like me so that you're not distracted by these others. Now in verses 20 through 21, Paul says, we need to be intentional about this. Because we have a hope that's outside of this life. This is all in contrast to that last phrase, whose mind is on earthly things. In verse 20 and 21, Paul says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. In these verses, Paul says, We need to intentionally cultivate a group of people who are also following Christ and find examples of people whose lives are godly and common to follow because we have a hope that's outside of this life. We live on this earth, but we belong to God's kingdom. That's what verse 20 is saying. But our citizenship is in heaven. We're still down here, but we don't really belong here. And when he says our citizenship is in heaven, you may remember many, many sessions ago, many months ago, I talked about how the the, uh, city of Philippi was actually a Roman colony. It was established by the Roman government uh, overtly. Not not, Not a city that came in and conquered, but one they established. And because it was in a Roman colony, many, if not most, of the people who lived there were Roman citizens. And they were proud of the fact that they were Roman citizens. They had status in the world and rights in the world that most of the other people who were conquered by Rome didn't have. And Paul comes back to that idea of citizenship repeatedly in this letter to tell them, I understand you're proud about your Roman citizenship. Paul was a Roman citizen too, and he used it for his advantage. But he's saying our real citizenship is in heaven, and we should think this way. A citizen of another country lives differently while he's traveling than he does at home. And that's what Paul's saying here. We're down here like travelers, but we really are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so we should live like we're on vacation in a sense, in a, in a very clear sense, rather than making this world our home. Think about when you travel. I'm going to Los Angeles in a few weeks to attend a conference. When I go there, I don't buy a house. Okay, I rent I'm renting a house this time with a bunch of friends. We're all splitting up the cost. Why? Because it's cheaper and it's actually more convenient than staying in a hotel. I also don't care about local issues. I don't care what's going on locally. If they want to raise taxes on themselves, you know, be my guest. I'm not going to pay them because I don't live there. I don't care who's running for mayor if there even is a mayoral election going on. I don't care what ordinances they're trying to pass or change. I don't care what the local zoning laws are, because I don't live there. I don't belong there. I don't own property there. I also am not going to buy a bunch of furniture and a bunch of new clothes. I'm not going to buy a car while I'm there, because I don't belong there. I'm not a citizen of there. I'm going to stay there for a while. I'm going to enjoy some things about being there, but I'm not going to live like this is my home, like this is the place where I belong. And Paul uses that language to say, think of your Christian life this way. You should think in terms of renting, not buying, because this world isn't our ultimate home. We belong to the kingdom of God, and we should have financial priorities and have personal priorities. 
and live according to the laws of that kingdom rather than what's acceptable, the culture of this one. Now, we belong to this kingdom, of course, based on God's gracious calling. He says in verse 20, But our citizenship is heaven in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. We, be- we got saved. We were rescued by Jesus Christ when we put our faith and trust in Him. But we're still waiting for that rescue to fully pay off. We know it's going to happen because of the promise of God. That's why we say we're saved now. But we don't actually experience all that salvation until Jesus appears, until he comes in his second coming and establishes his kingdom. And so Paul turns to that at the end of verse 20 and verse 21. He tells us we're waiting for Christ to return and complete the salvation that he conferred upon us by his grace, that he called us to in repentance and faith. Verse 20b says, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. When Christ returns, he will complete our salvation. And he will do it by the power of his lordship over all things. Verse 21 says, Who by the power that enables to bring everything under his control. When Jesus left this earth, he said, All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is the sovereign of the universe. He had that by virtue of being creator of all things, but of course we rebelled against him. Now in his redemption, he is reclaiming his territory, reclaiming his kingdom. And by that power, Paul says, he will transform our lowly bodies. The parts of us that desire to live for this world, the parts of us that want to have our God as our stomach, that are ruled by our appetites and desires, All of those stem from the fact that we're still fallen. Our bodies have not yet been redeemed, nor have our minds or our wills fully. But when Christ returns, he's going to transform us. Verse 21 says, he will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This means many things. It means we cannot die when we're transformed. It means we'll have powers and abilities that we don't have in this mortal and fallen life and existence. But I think in context here, Paul is describing the fact that we will have righteous appetites, righteous desires, and we will live righteous lives. Since that's our hope and our destiny, Paul says, let's work toward living that way now. Because we want to know Christ and be like him, let's put aside the earthly appetites that trip us up and lead us astray. Let's pursue knowing Christ with our hearts and our minds and living like him in our daily existence. Every Christian's goal should be to know Christ, just like Paul's goal was. And we should live for that goal by following Paul's example because there are many bad examples to follow. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you do this, if your goal is to know Christ and you live for that goal by following the example of Paul and other godly people, you will find a better brand of happiness.